Well, if you can imagine a map of England and the southwest peninsula poking out into the Atlantic Ocean, if you can, um, and the southwest coast path of England goes all the way round, starts off in um, Minehead in uh, Somerset and goes right down to Land's End and comes all the way back along to Pool Harbour in Dorset. And it's been my hobby over quite a lot of years to spend a, um, a weekend or two each year to try and do a bit of that on, on my two legs. Um, about ten years ago, I was walking along the uh, southwest coast path with a friend of mine, a lovely Christian man, and he'd got uh, he'd got uh, an introduction, some friends down there, so you know we took it, and uh, we stopped off uh, at this home of, of these local Christians, and they were a faithful and diligent couple, um, and a lot of the practical functioning of the local church depended on them, and we were shown lovely hospitality. Were welcomed, included in the life of their church and their home, all the time while my blisters and my chafed legs healed because I wasn't fit enough. But one thing stands out in my memory of that time, quite a while ago now, but it was the almost throwaway comment by the lady who lived uh, in this house that somebody of their acquaintance, a man in their church, had fallen into sin. And he cheated on his wife, he'd committed adultery, and I think he'd left her. And this man, she remarked, in an almost, as I said, throwaway comment, she said, he could not be a Christian as a, as a result of having fallen into this sin. Now, I didn't know this man, I've got no way of knowing whether or not this guy had a credible profession of, of faith or not. But what struck me was the certainty exhibited by somebody who I, I thought to be I thought to be well taught in the teaching of the Bible that a person who'd fallen into this sin couldn't therefore could not hundred percent certain could not be a Christian. Well what we've got in Psalm fifty one is, is the outpouring of a man who's who's not only guilty of adultery but he's also guilty of murder. Briefly the background of the Psalm that we had the second half read to us is that King David is walking on the roof of his palace in the evening, it's springtime beautiful time of year in the Middle East and he sees from the elevated position of his palace the rooftop of his palace, he sees a beautiful woman bathing out of doors and it's possible to get into all sorts of discussion as to the wisdom or, or otherwise of the king not having left for, his, left for war with his army, but the facts speak for themselves. He acts on the lustful impulse. He abuses his power to get access to the woman. He seduces her. He gets her pregnant. And then he attempts to cover up his paternity of her child. And then when that fails, he engineers the death in battle of her husband. And you can read the account in the chapter before the one that Bex read to us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And what David had done, we read, displeased the Lord. And the prophet is, prophet Nathan is sent by God to bring a message of divine condemnation. And as we read, as Bex read to us, the prophet teased David up by telling him just the sort of tale 
of injustice that's guaranteed to rear mighty indignation in the king and David buys the whole thing. The story of the poor man who's only got one lamb, a loved family pet and the hope of wool and progeny for the future and he has it stolen by a rich man. So the rich man and his travelling visitor can have a slap up supper. And this story twangs exactly the heartstrings that the prophet intends. David is outraged and he vows lethal vengeance on the rich man in the story, only to be told, you're the man, you did it David, yes, you did it. And David's brought low by God's intervention. And our passage, what we're going to read in a minute, is a song of penitence by someone who's thinking clearly, somebody who knows the score, and someone who, despite his culpability and how blameworthy he is, and and the, the moral catastrophe of his actions, is someone who still, significantly, for the lady in my introduction, is still in a relationship with God. So the great thing is then, that God can reach us wherever we are, and he can reach us in whatever depths that we've sunk. While I was preparing for this morning, um, one of the really helpful things that was pointed out to me is that it's possible to forget that the Psalms are songs, they're poetic compositions, they're, they're, they're songs which involve melody and rhyme and rhythm and so forth. So they're not going to be set down as prose, which kind of outlines a passage of history or a, an argument of doctrine like in an epistle. And another idea, another feature of the, of the Psalms is this concept of, the, of, of a refrain or of a chorus. So it can look when you read it like the ideas are all jumbled up. You think, well, why did he say that then and, and not before? And the idea, of course, is that we're reading these ideas and these thoughts and emotions as they were sung or as they were recited. And the psalm, it splits up into two bits, two main parts where David's confession and his pleas for pardon are dealt with in the first bit and his restoration and thankfulness in the second half of the psalm. So let's do that. Let's read the psalm. It's Psalm 51. It's on 500, page 573 um, in the Blue Morden Road Bible, Church Bible. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David's begging for mercy at the start of the psalm in verses 1 and 2 is based squarely on what he knows about God's character the attributes of unfailing love and mercy are what David appealed to when he asked God to blot out his sin. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if, if God was not like this? Um, you only have to look at the three deities which I think are worshipped in contemporary British society and I think they're false or malign to find the answer. Most people worship, I think, their work, alcohol or football. Sorry. And I think Oxford, well I know, you can see it, you only have to go into town. Oxford's got its share of poor souls whose god alcohol has shown them neither mercy or love. And corporate life is strewn, I can tell you it's right, It's strewn with the emotional corpses of those who've given everything to the great Lord of company profitability. But how has he rewarded them? Well, I can think of lots of examples where this great Lord of company profitability has repaid them with rejection and broken promises. And as they're being thrown out onto the scrap heap, they'll say, well, I'm sorry, it was all due to factors beyond our control. Some God, him. Um, after the uh, BBC coverage finished of the World Cup final sorry, you couldn't get away with that football, could you? Um, the words of Goethe I think it was Goethe, Richard will put me right if I'm wrong were printed and read out on the screen Happy those an empty dream preoccupies Well I think Goethe was right at least about one thing, his description of the football deity is an empty dream. But, but happy? Happy? I, I know the empty dream briefly made the Italians happy until they got home and found out what the state Serie A was in, but the equally committed French devotees were left absolutely empty and desolate. And so much so that a week later, when Naomi and I went to a football-crazy part of France, it was almost as though the World Cup had never happened. David knew that his God was a good God because he'd proved it by his experience, his experience of life, 
His early life of a shepherd, as we heard, was full of instances where God had helped him. God had delivered him from a lion, from bears, from a gigantic Philistine, and more than once from his nutty and deranged predecessor on the, ro- on the royal throne, King Saul. And all of these incidents would have, would, have con- would have convinced David that he had a God who cared about him, a God who was good. But he's under conviction of sin. And I guess the the key difference between somebody who's under conviction of sin and someone who isn't is that the guy under conviction of sin, he has an overwhelming obsession with a feeling of oppressive guilt and a good night's sleep and a busy program won't banish the recurring thought, what have I done? So in verse 4 he says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you read that and you think, well, David, you're saying to God, Against you only have I sinned. Does he mean that he doesn't think that he's wronged Uriah or that he's wronged Bathsheba? Well, he can't do. If you look at David's reaction to the word of the Lord through Nathan the prophet, it shows otherwise. Nathan's story, after all, depicts somebody abusing power where the vulnerable are harmed. Nathan goes to David and he's utterly fearless, bearing in mind that David is an all-powerful ruler. And he goes to him and his message pulls no punches. Nathan demands, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And to nail down David's interpersonal culpability, he jabs his finger at David and lets him have it. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. Nathan, he goes even further... He he tells David exactly how he's done for Uriah, how he actually sorted out the assassination. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And that's David's, David's judgment. Nathan delivers God's judgment and, and David just crumpled. And his result, his, his remark in Samuel says, I have sinned against the Lord. So the link is clear then in David's mind between harming the vulnerable and sinning against God. And in this psalm, they're one and the same. So the question then is, does the guilt which is attached to robbing another's name with a, a snide, another's good name with, with a sort of snide word, or the guilt attached to that lustful thought, or the guilt attached to that self-pitying thought, or the guilt attached to any of the, the, the stream of thoughts which mark us as, as sinful creatures, do they ever strike us as a sin against God? Or, or do we sort of justify ourselves and employ all sorts of kind of offence-minimising techniques I've got written down in my notes? Like, well, it doesn't amount to much, does it? Or, well, you know, God knows what I'm like. The bona fide in verses 3 and 6 of the psalm of David's repentance the bona fide is that he can see, he's ready to see how his actions have offended God. Um, back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a chap called Bernie Taupin who used to write lyrics for Elton John. And you all know the song that sorry seems to be the hardest word. Now, <clears throat> I was hoping that my daughter was going to be in junior church, but sorry Naomi, you're going to have to listen to this. For some of you are parents as well, but 
you know, sometimes you might have witnessed <laughs> your children fighting with you or arguing and one, the, the situation is like this, one of them has just spoiled the other one's favourite game and the other one rears up and says, oh, what are you doing? And the answer is, oh, sorry. And it's sort of an easy, casual, airy sorry, an airy sorry, an easy sorry. And this never happens anymore, I can promise you, but similarly, if they have thought, you might have had need to arbitrate between two juvenile antagonists and you've managed to wring a reluctant sorry through gritted teeth from one of your little darlings towards their wrong sibling. <laughs> you know though that in your absence that the hostilities, they'd have carried on, wouldn't they? They'd have carried on unabated. And in neither case is the apology real, nor do they represent repentance. And it's also worth pointing out that David didn't appeal for the fact, the fact that any potentate, any eastern potentate in his day would have done exactly as he had wished with Bathsheba had the potentate so wanted. He, was, he wasn't judging things. David was agreeing with God's judgment. You are the one who is justified when you judge. So the contrast in the psalm is, is in stark. David's repentance is, is real. It's not casual. It, it's absolutely genuine. It's not forced and he doesn't justify himself. And God is acknowledged in verse 4 as the only one who is right when you judge. And he goes even further in verse 5 to admit that sin has marked him from his earliest moments. And it wouldn't have escaped David that repentance by itself wasn't going to suffice. Restitution would have to be made. Blood sacrifice isn't mentioned in the psalm, but in verse 7 there's this reference to hyssop. Cleanse me with hyssop. A hyssop, from my reading of commentaries, was a bunch of wild herbs gathered from the countryside. And the use of this word hyssop points straight to the Passover ceremonial. It goes right back to the time when Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And the slaughtered lamb's blood was gathered in a bowl and its blood was daubed on the doorposts and on the lintel of the door so that they would be given protection from the angel of death as he passed over, hence the name Passover. So that word hyssop opens the door on the whole of the ceremonial of the, New Testament, of the Old Testament and David would have been completely familiar with the absolute insistence by God in the Old Testament, in the law, that without the shedding of blood, forgiveness was impossible. And isn't it strange that the one biological fluid with the greatest power to stain should be the metaphor chosen to create snow whiteness. Cleanse me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's with blood. In Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the Apostle John is being shown round the new heavens and new earth by this angel and he sees this great host of the redeemed. And the angel says to him, well, who are these people? And John answers, he says, Sir, you know. 
These are they who have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The stain of sin, its long-lasting, lingering, disfiguring, spoiling effects, David's sin, is the one reason why blood is used to show that God's cleansing is supernatural. It happens again in, again in the New Testament, lots of times, but one in particular which, which struck me. John the Baptist, at his first sight of Jesus, at the very beginning of the Gospel story, he says, Look, behold, in the authorised, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist could see the resonance from the Psalms in Jesus. Looked at that from our point in time, the, re- the redeeming work of Jesus, it's so clear to see in Psalm 51, if you cleanse me with hyssop, David says, I shall be clean. We could see earlier that, God had, that David had proved that his God was good from his experience. And I know that God is good too, for the same reason. But I also know more surely, more certainly, that God is good. Because, and this should ring a few bells from Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, David, he lived centuries before Jesus, but the only way that David could be forgiven, and the only way that I could be forgiven, is because of Jesus. So, I need to ask you, whether or not you know what I'm talking about I need to ask you have you been forgiven? are you facing up to your sin? do you justify your sin? do you find yourself throwing yourself into work hoping that whatever the issue whatever the sin whatever the pain that it will simply go away do I do you ask God for joy and gladness how can we ever forgive, forget that fantastic feeling of having been forgiven? The joy, the gladness. In verse 8, David wants it back again and he's asking for it. Last week after church, um, we had a picnic. I'm telling you, you were there, weren't you? But anyway, we had this picnic out in the, in the field. And in the corner of the field, there are these uh, kind of cube things, you know, I think they're originally intended for, um, for uh, cricket nets or something. And I was standing there watching uh, quite a few of the children climbing up and swinging along the, the bars. And I think one, at least one grown-up as well. And, <laughs> and um, I was standing there and... Uh, just looking and chatting, and, and one of the elders said to me, he suggested to me, that it wouldn't be a good idea if I were to have a go, because, in his words, the bar might bend. And I think he meant it kindly. But I, re- I mentioned that because when I was a little boy, a long time ago, um, I, and thin, I loved climbing trees. And one time on, on, on Dartford Heath, near Dartford, in, on the edge of London, in Kent, I was, lots of lovely trees in, in, on Dartford Heath, and I was climbing a tree, and I was swinging along a branch, and I missed my handhold, and I fell, and I broke my arm. And uh, the charming medic at um, 
Dartford Hospital on West Hill to set my broken bones with no anaesthetic. And the memory of that pain nearly 40 years later is still strong. But now I've got a good mend, strong arm, it healed. And in, in, it repeated in the psalm, in verse 8, as well again as in verse 17, we can find brokenness associated with God's blessing. And it's repeated again in the, in the Gospels, this idea about brokenness. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected, and he's talking about himself here, he's talking about himself being rejected by the religious authorities of the day, the stone that the builders rejected has become the headstone. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So clearly, that Jesus is talking about the opportunity which we have of falling at God's feet, of falling in repentance and brokenness before God. But he's also talking about a time when that won't be possible. Because if you're broken, you can be mended, but if you're ground to powder, you can't be. So this opportunity to repent and to be right with God is something which is not for always and we have to take the opportunity as God gives it to us. Sin marks your life and it marks my life and if realising the effects of this horrible characteristic like it's left me in, in the past damaged and broken then there's comfort to be had there is healing to be had there is restoration there is joy and there is gladness and the only glimpse that David was given as to how this was going to be achieved was in his insight about hyssop. And we've got an infinitely better view. In Luke chapter 18, there's this parable told by Jesus. And it's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they both go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisees were renowned for being fastidious, getting everything right. And the tax collector represented the dodgy dealing, swindling, stereotype of Rome's in the revenue department. And the Pharisee sort of launches into his well-known um, monologue about you know, self-congratulation. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer, a swindler, a cheat, or even you know, like this tax collector over here. And a tax collector, by total contrast, won't even lift up his face to heaven, but he hits himself and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the tax collector, Jesus tells us, goes home justified before God. And you could almost write as an epitaph of that story, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God did not despise and take it right out of Psalm 51. The next point I've got uh, subtitled in my notes uh, as a question, where are the nine? Um, it worried me that it sounded a bit like a sort of quotation from Lord of the Rings, but it's not. <laughs> it's a question, and it's a question from the lips of Jesus. In Luke chapter 17, there's a story, uh, uh, an account of Jesus journeying from Samaria to Galilee. And the story uh, goes that ten lepers stand a long way off, they're not allowed to come close because of the ceremonial law, but they stand a long way off, these ten lepers, and they, they cry out, Jesus, have mercy on us. 
and Jesus tells them what to do. He says, go and show yourself to the priests. And they do as he's told them. Wow! They're cleansed from their leprosy and just one, just one comes back and throws himself at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks and praise. And Jesus says, well, weren't there ten that were, 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 were healed? Where are the nine? David is in the company of that one thankful leper because in verse 13 he says, then. And that then can be preceded by saying, having received from God unfailing love, great compassion, forgiveness, healing, joy, gladness, a pure heart, a steadfast spirit and a willing spirit to sustain me, then, he says, I'm not going to keep it to myself. It can make a difference, right? He's saying. They'll turn back to you, Lord, when they hear what I've got to say, what I'm going to tell them. And it's not going to be some lofty treatise of, of theoretical book learning that he plans to deliver. This will be visceral, heartfelt, from the gut, experimental pleading. What he has to say when he's teaching transgressors God's ways will be based on his own chapter of failure and recovery. So, another question is, do you, if you have experienced that wonderful list of presents, that glorious great hamper of good things from God that I listed, do you teach transgressors God's ways, the people you come into contact with? That's the pattern. The next, uh, next point I've got, a subtitle in my notes, which says, um, it's to do with verse 18 and verse 19, towards the end of the psalm. And the uh, subtitle says, A full church with a silent collection. Now I admit, this is a very narrow picture of what David is asking of God. But if you don't know what a silent collection is, I have a feeling that Richard Brewster might know what it is, and you'll have to ask me later, but giving to, clue, giving to, wishing for and praying for and working towards the benefit of God's church, I have to tell you what a silent collection is, aren't I? Because you don't know. Well, in certain parts of this country of ours, a silent collection is when they send around the basket and the, and the man, he normally says it with a Northern Irish accent, sorry, and he says, I want a silent collection, which means no coins, alright? Just notes. <laughs> I couldn't help it, I just had to tell you. That, like I said, giving to, giving towards God's work, wishing for God's work to flourish and to prosper, praying for God's work, working towards the benefit of God's church, follows reconciliation like David has experienced in Psalm chapter 51, like night follows day. And in the livestock economy of an eastern farmer of Bible times, a bull or a bullock would have been the biggest thing that anybody could have given as an offering to God. And David says they, plural, more than one, were going to be offered on God's altar. 
And you might be wondering why God is talking about offerings to delight his God when he just previously in verse 16 he said to God you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. So how do you square those two things? Surely the explanation is that there's a world of difference between as it were paying for the damage settling my account with God by sacrifice to placate him something I could never do and a response of love and gratitude to God for what he has done for me, something which offers something to delight my God. From a position of of near despair then, David has charted how God has brought him to a realisation of what sin, his sin, means, and how God's character and provision have enabled David's restoration And finally, the outworking of his restoration in terms of his witness and his worship. And the psalm, it should resonate with each one of us in whatever state we find ourselves in this morning. If if, if we're seized by the horror and dread of, of conviction of sin, let's follow David to that one thing that can make us whiter than snow. And we know what that is, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that will take away our sin. And if brokenness before God is our lot, then just like David, we can say that God's healing is not just something for people like me in a position like this to go on about. It is for real. God does heal. God does bring restoration and healing. And if exhilaration and enjoyment of the fantastic realisation of new life, a future with God, peace with God best describes you then tell transgressors about God's ways and and let's see to it that big, prime juicy, prize winning bulls the best that we've got to offer are are what we offer on the altar of our worship to God and you know after all when everything is said and done. Saviour, what can be said, what can be done, to the praise of your name, the things you have done? Oh, my words could not tell, not even in part, of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. Shall we pray?